Good morning, church. Good morning. I um, had this scripture in my mind and on my heart last weekend. And as the week progressed, it stayed there. Um, Sometimes that doesn't happen. Um, But it stayed there. And one of the reasons, um, how many people watch the news? How many people watch Sky News? I watch Sky News on my Apple TV because um, I like to get some news from Great Britain from that source. And and, uh, there's some things that when you become a father, you just, um, when you hear them or when you see them, they have so much of a greater impact than they would have had previously. And so this week, as a, as a dad of two beautiful daughters, um, I watched a father with microphones and cameras in his face um, trying to share his despair verbally after pictures of his washed-up two-year-old son were, were put on the news on a Turkish beach. Um, a Syrian family, two-year-old boy named Aylan, Aylan. Curdy. His older brother was four. He died also, and his mother. And his father, Abdullah, couldn't say much, but what he did say was this I don't want anything else from this world. Everything I was dreaming of is gone. I want to bury my children and sit beside them until I die. This is just one Syrian family. One, one of thousands that are trying to find a way to get their kids to a place that is safe, to a place that will give them education and they won't be looking over their shoulder all the time or being persecuted or treated unfairly. And I have a friend, uh, when I did my, my master's degree at Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, I have a good friend called Nabil Habibi. I love saying his name. It's, it's wonderful. Nabil Habibi. And Nabil is from Beirut, Lebanon. He's a Nazarene, just like me, just like most of you, I'm sure. And uh, he teaches at the Nazarene school in Beirut. They have many Syrian refugee children. And so, again, for me, as I watch this, as a dad of two daughters and as someone who has a friend that has told me stories of some of these children coming through the school system, I just wept. And it made me think all the more about this parable of the Good Samaritan because uh, you've got to remember, Luke, the gospel writer in this instance, is very interested in Jesus' ministry to the Darnanites to the nobodies, to the people that have been forgotten, the forgotten ones. His kingdom is, above all, good news to the poor. It's good news to those who are are currently last, because they're going to be first. Jesus said it. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Check out Matthew 20, and you'll you'll see that in the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Can you think of anyone famous or well known that has referenced the Good Samaritan parable in some way, shape, or form in a public speech? Anyone? Okay, well, here's the thing. Before I do this, two weeks ago, I became a naturalized citizen of the United States. And so, <laughs> um, I've now got a foot in both sides of the Atlantic. Um, 
Isn't that, isn't that interesting? I, I'm a, a citizen of two of the wealthiest countries in the world. It's scary. But first I have George W. Bush. For President Bush, the parable is about taking care of nations in distress. Taking care of nations in distress. And for Queen Elizabeth II, bless her heart. Everyone is our... I should should preface this. She, um, every Christmas, Christmas Day in the United Kingdom, you get up, you go to church, because we have have church on Christmas Day. Go to church Christmas Day for about 45 minutes, depending on who your pastor is. And then uh, you see some of the kids' toys. You go home, you snack, you snack, you snack. Then you have dinner. And then the queen comes on at about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. It's just it's the graveyard shift. You just know what it is. Um, the queen comes on with her recorded Christmas message. And in 2004, she said this. Everyone is our neighbor, no matter what race, creed, or color. The need to look after a fellow human being is far more important than any cultural or religious differences. Her outlook is being tested right now. Mr. David Cameron and his friends, are being tested right now. The situation in France, in, in, in Calais, I've been there, I've gone through that channel tunnel. People are risking their lives to get into a tunnel, to walk through the tunnel under the English Channel to get to England. That's how desperate they are. And before we read the scripture itself, let's put it in context. Jesus is responding to a lawyer or a Torah scholar who's asked the question, who is my neighbor? Because Jesus is saying, you know, in the Shema, love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? That's an important question, right? If you're telling me to love my neighbor, I want to know who my neighbor is. So Jesus is responding to him. Uh, and Gordon Wenham, uh, a commentator that I've read, was, was saying that, you know, the Jews, you have to remember this, the Jews had different views as to who was included in that and who wasn't. The Gentiles were obviously not included. We know that. We know that very well. But turn with me to Luke chapter 10, if you will. It'll also be on the screen. Luke chapter 10, reading from verses 25 to 37. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and when I come back I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three, do you think, was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. 
Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, would you bless this time this morning as we study your word together? Would you speak to our hearts, challenge us, stir us to action, stir us to respond to your word and to to come before you humbly as your children. Help us to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this parable, Jesus describes this young man uh, heading down the road to Jericho from Jerusalem. And (laughs) today, there's a really nice sweeping road that heads down into the Rift Valley. I've been there. I was trying to find a picture that would help you see, but you've seen a road. Who's seen a road? Okay, not a San Diego road, because they're full of potholes, but a really nice road, smooth um, I remember going to Jericho in 2006 with Dr. Swanson, my Old Testament prof, and had a wonderful time there. But back in the day, those roads didn't exist. The Roman Empire had not uh, introduced their road system at that time, uh, and so it was pretty rough. And in about 17 miles of distance, the, the, the road descended from 2,500 feet above sea level to 770 feet below. Pretty amazing. And it wasn't a good idea to travel that road alone. I was trying to think of the modern day equivalent. There's some roads you don't drive down alone, let alone walk down alone. There's some roads you drive down and you might lock your doors. When I first came to California, uh, newly married with my wife, who's from California, we're driving through a certain part of L.A., I don't even know where it was, and I heard this noise. She had locked the doors. But what's wrong? I just I need to lock the doors here. What, what do you mean? You just you just need to lock the doors. Well, growing up in Northern Ireland, I'm no stranger to security issues um, or explosives, but it just felt odd to me because it, it seemed like a nice area. But we all have those places that we can think of in our minds where you know I, either you would drive down there with your doors locked or you, you wouldn't drive down there at all. You certainly wouldn't walk down there. But this is one of those roads. You don't do it alone. And the description of this man being set upon and beaten and robbed, it's uncomfortably, it makes uncomfortable sense to the people that are listening. Because they know. Well, yeah, that's, that, what that guy did, I wouldn't do that. He went down there alone. What was he thinking? What was he thinking? There was a long-standing Mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so it's easy to appreciate how controversial Jesus was when he introduced this Samaritan into the story. But he didn't just introduce the Samaritan into the story. He goes out of his way to emphasize the kindness of this Samaritan. Kindness that he's displaying to someone that's not a Samaritan. It says in verse 33, he was moved with pity. In other versions, it says, his heart went out to him. The same word, this is interesting, I learned this this week. I love learning things. The same word is used here as that of the prodigal son's father. His heart went out to him. And also of the the, the king uh, in the parable of the unmerciful servant. His compassion was expressed through action. It wasn't just felt. It was acted upon. 
And it's been estimated that the, the two denarii that the Samaritan coughed up would have paid for 24 nights at the inn. That wouldn't do much at the Hilton today, but at this inn, it would get 24 nights. That's pretty impressive. It was a generous provision. It was. And he promised more if need be. All this done by a hated, a hated Samaritan for a Jew. And yet it wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about the resources he gave. It was the fact that he was acting. He was showing compassion. And Jesus calling these people to love the Samaritan, the enemy, in his day was a revolutionary. No question. Marcus Borg, another writer that I've, I've, I've read, points out that it was characteristic of Judaism at that time to emphasize religious and social separation from all sorts of unclean people, including sinners, Gentiles, Samaritans, lepers, tax collectors. I have many classes with probably one of the best professors that I know, Dr. Kent Brower in Manchester. And he is so passionate about the study of God's word and understanding the Jewish people when they consider themselves the people of God, the holy people of God, a holy nation. That's what these Jews were protecting. We're we're God's holy nation. They were preserving it. It's not difficult to think of modern equivalents. Here's the really cool thing. Jesus was an advocate for outgoing holiness of healing and bridge building. Not a defensive holiness of withdrawal. I've got to protect what I've got. I've got to tell you right now it's frustrating watching my soccer team. They're killing me. I've never seen a goalkeeper touch the ball with his feet so much in all my days. And I'm only 34. The coach's philosophy, and this, all the American TV viewers would just switch off at this point. His philosophy is, well, as long as we score one more than the opponent, it doesn't matter. I disagree, Mr. Van Hal. <laughs> Keeping the ball in your third of, own third of the field, tip-top, tip and then the goalie makes a mistake, snap at the pencil. It's all over. I don't want... The holiness of God that he wants to place in me and change me. I don't want that to be something that I defend. Because it can't be contaminated. When Jesus heals the leper, he doesn't become unclean. When the woman touches his garment, he doesn't become unclean. When he spits and makes mud and rubs it in the guy's eyes, he doesn't become unclean. His holiness is contagious. I've always been fascinated with a group of a Jewish sect called the Essenes. Mainly because they threw John the Baptist out. I think that's funny. They lived at Qumran. I remember visiting that site with Dr. Swanson. and The one thing that strikes me is that there's a lot of stuff still remaining. You can really get a good picture of what it looked like. But there were ritual baths everywhere. I tell you. Those people were so focused on their outward cleanliness, I don't think I want to see their hearts. They wrote a scathing scroll about how the temple was corrupt. It's called the Temple Scroll. 
could have thought of that. Um, but their hearts, they wanted to protect. If they needed to use the restroom during Passover, they would have to leave the city and go a certain distance to do that, do their thing, and then clean, clean up and come back. Some really fascinating understandings of holiness. The monastic movement. Jesus lived the revolution himself, and so he was inviting other people to join him. Love your neighbor. Don't distinguish between people. And that's the key question this morning. Who is my neighbor? Who is your neighbor? I have many neighbors in my apartment complex. Noticed a few moving out this week. Probably my daughter. She's too daughter. But you know what I mean. Who is your neighbor? The Torah scholar, this lawyer, answered Jesus with profound wisdom. The one who showed mercy. Man, what a good answer. Each person needs to understand the needs of his or her neighbor in order to become a neighbor. This lawyer no longer defined the Samaritan only as a member of another religious or cultural community. You notice he said the one who showed mercy. He didn't refer to him as the Samaritan. He defined him by his actions. Beautiful. He is the one who showed compassion. In order to understand or define the meaning of neighbor, we must first become a neighbor. This lawyer realized from hearing Jesus share this story that every human being, whether friend or enemy, is of inestimable value because they're created in God's image. Genesis 1, 26, 27. How we view other people should not be dependent upon what they're wearing or how they speak or anything. They're created in God's image. So how we treat them matters. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus really made this point clear enough for the the lawyer. But I read one commentator who kind of put a twist on this phrase. You shall love even your enemy as yourself. You shall love even your enemy as yourself. That word enemy, I don't, I don't use it a lot. Maybe if I played video games, I would. I don't know. I'll ask the teens. Um, it's a strong word. When someone wrongs us, we don't necessarily want to go to the enemy word right away. It's pretty condemning. And the priest and the Levite in this story are examples of those who put all kinds of values first before helping others. Ethnicity or religious propriety. They put that above concern for a fellow human being. The story is fiction, I know. These two flawed characters, the priest and the Levite, shouldn't be understood as typical representatives of of historical Judaism. But they do, in a caricatured kind of way, represent that segment of the population whose views have become out of balance. 
Some of you may be sitting here today and you're thinking, first of all, who is that guy and what's with the accent? My name's Colin, I'm a youth pastor here, and I'm from Northern Ireland originally. That's where I grew up, Lisburn, Northern Ireland. And our very own Sarah Jones from Mission Church was just pictured on Facebook today with one of my best friends three miles from my parents' house. I didn't realize she was going that close. She said she was going to Ireland, I didn't realize she was going that close. I have a slide here. I was just talking about soccer a moment ago. The jersey on the left is a Glasgow Celtic jersey. Um, When you see that, when I see that, my prejudiced eyes, mind, see, oh, Catholic. When I see the red, white, and blue Glasgow Rangers jersey, Protestant. The problems in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland are not as simple as Protestant Catholic. FYI. However, I had many Catholic friends growing up, didn't understand the issue. And uh, I remember one Friday night, well, it was Saturday morning when I heard, but it was a Friday night when an acquaintance of mine, he wasn't a close friend, but we had, we had been in the same circle of friends once or twice, 15 years old. He's walking home, and he was wearing the Glasgow Celtic jersey. So that makes him a Catholic. When a number of young men decided that that was not okay, And they stabbed him 96 times. Because of the jersey. And I think I have bad days. He literally wore the wrong t-shirt. It's so easy to fall into the trap of classifying people I'm pigeonholing people. I'm buying into a philosophy that, well, that's, we don't, don't deal with them. That's not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. If compassion for humankind is the best religious practice, then presenting this facade of religious legitimacy, and I'm, I'm just a wonderful Christian, while feeling in compassion is the worst practice. The compassion has to flow. You know, for a long time, I, I really believed that you know, the priest and the Levite, I, I really got upset with them. Because I'm thinking, really, you're putting your ritual purity before helping someone. It's because you're going to go serve in the temple. Okay, whatever. But I, really, I was really hard on them. And then David Neal, uh, a commentator uh, with Beacon Bible Commentary out of Nazarene Publishing House, He was mentioning that that in the scripture you'll read that it says they're going down from Jerusalem. So if you're going down from Jerusalem, you're not going to perform priestly duties. Of course, this is all commentary. I know. But if that's the case, it's even worse. Because they're not going to perform priestly duties. that, That isn't a factor in their decision. Why didn't they help the man? Why? The actions of this Samaritan are really a challenge and an exhortation to us. We need to integrate our love for God with our love for neighbor. 
You can't have one or the other. Because if you're loving God, you therefore should be truly loving God, you're loving your neighbor. If you're not loving God, it's even harder to love your neighbor. Jesus said in verse 37, go and do likewise. That's a command. He's not suggesting it. He's not saying, well, it would be nice if you would. No, go and do likewise. There can be no new social reality or, or transformation in human warmth and in compassion without the spirit of holiness. The Nazarene church is a church of holiness. Wesleyan holiness tradition. Amen? Anyone? This principle resides at the very center of Wesleyan practice and theology. To the extent that God's kingdom can be realized in this age that we're living in, it can only come about through transformation. Transformation that's based on love and compassion. This Samaritan is modeling the way of life that will bring the kingdom's transforming power into our world. Turning the social norm on its head. Going upstream like the salmon. Whatever way you want to do it. The point we learn is that it's not who deserves to be cared for, but rather the demand to become a person. We need to become people who treat everyone we encounter, however frightening, alien, naked or defenseless, with compassion. The United States referred to me as an alien. I have an alien number. I've had it for seven years. Always thought that was odd. I don't have antennas, anything. They refer to me as an alien. Nice. Jesus doesn't clarify a point of view. He transmutes the gospel. We are to take the same risk with our life and our possessions that the Samaritan did. The robbers could have been in hiding, ready to pounce. And that's one of the suggestions that David Neal made when, when I was mentioning about the priest and the Levite. How they weren't necessarily going to perform priestly duties, so they probably could have, you know, done a bit of life-saving work. They could have been in hiding. True. The Samaritan was brave. He was bold. When we allow God to give us a heavenly perspective on who our neighbors are, then we can make choices and act in ways that usher in his kingdom. We are his agents of transformation. We are his conduits of grace and love and hope and peace. The upside down kingdom, the kingdom where the last are first and the first are last. John Wesley in his sermon, The New Birth, says this. Gospel holiness is no less than the image of God stamped upon the heart. It is no other than the whole mind which was in Christ Jesus. It consists of all heavenly affections and tempers mingled together. The whole mind which was in Christ Jesus. I don't know about you, but for me, if I am to to have the mind that was in Christ Jesus, when I read this parable, I have nowhere to hide. When I see a brother and a sister suffering, 
when I see a brother losing his entire family in a heartbeat on a Turkish beach. Compassion. And patience to know I can't fix it like that. And in some way, the story of the Good Samaritan and the following story with Jesus visiting Martha and Mary, it's like the first one is really emphasizing loving your neighbor and loving others. And then you get to this next one with Martha and Mary where it's about loving God. Would you drop what you're doing and listen to me? What do we do? This is, I've really been going through this recently when I've been preparing lessons for the teens and sermons. What do we do with this? Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. Very large organization that works all around the world. Yesterday, um, some of you may know the Sundberg family. Um, my friends, uh, Jay and Tiana Sundberg, are Nazarene missionaries in Hungary, based in Budapest. And uh, Tiana and Jay were posting videos and photographs on Facebook yesterday of relief work happening. Uh, the Nazarenes are there, but as you can imagine, they're putting, a, they're putting a small dent in the need that's there. But they're present in France, they're present in Hungary, they're present in Germany, they're in Syria and Lebanon. Perhaps that's one way we can help. But then we bring it home. Who is your neighbor? Pastor Paul was sharing about the needs on the prayer list. Homes, jobs, finances, family, relational needs. We have neighbors that are hurting. And God can stir us to action. So as we sing this morning, we're going to sing a really favorite hymn of mine, aren't we? Are we going to? Sure. I just thrown Rob a curveball. And he's so good, it doesn't even look like it. I want us to praise the Lord this morning. Amen? Let's praise Him. But as we do that, our love for God has to then overflow into a love for others. A love for our neighbors. And it's not love as in warm and fuzzy. It's love as in action. Reaching out to our community. And if we have extra funds, sending them to Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. That we might be the hands and feet of Jesus where the needs are most rife right now. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the clothes on our backs, the roofs over our heads, the food on our tables. We praise you because you've made us You've made us for yourself. You created us in your own image. But you did the same thing with the Syrian refugees. With all the refugees from North Africa. And Lord, this situation is so complex. But you know all things. 
Would you help us in the coming days to be prayerfully considering who, who our neighbors are and how we can be your hands and feet? It's not always giving money. Lord, challenge us and stretch us. Help us to truly be conduits of grace and hope and love and peace. Help us to bring you glory. For it's in Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen.